so the love of God that we sing about this morning compels us as a church family to share it with others. So we love neighbors at Northwake, we plant churches, and we send missionaries all for the love of God. And I don't know, probably 10 years ago or more, we sent uh, a young lady named Jen to Africa to raise goats and share the love of Jesus with a group of people who had no access to that story and to hear its telling. While she was there as a result of a tragic uh, traffic incident that resulted in a fatality, um, Jen was incarcerated in an Ethiopian prison back in late 2016. Um, While she was there, she shared her living space with seven other uh, Ethiopian women and they did have access to a TV, she, she writes in one of her letters to us back when she was uh, in that prison. She, she was released later that year. But they had a TV in the room and the, Indian, or the uh, Ethiopian women loved to watch an Indian soap opera dubbed in the local language. She writes that they turned it up to full volume while they listened to it there. But I'd like you to hear what she wrote in her Thanksgiving letter from prison in Ethiopia that year. She says of their TV watching, she says, on commercial breaks or the dull parts in the soap operas are when my mattress neighbor and I share verses in the word or I read aloud and show them the notes and pictures that you send and write. If there are any Bible references in those letters, my friend reads them aloud in the local language for my two roommates who cannot read. And she goes on in her letter to share a series of prayer requests. These are among them. Pray for mercy and favor from the judges. Pray for my my prayer to be that my will conforms to his and not the other way around. And then she shares this last one. She says, for peace and love and patience with my roommates and for my sisters who are in prison with me to grow in their walk and the others to join our family in Christ. Now, if you found yourself in a spot like that or some other situation that was greatly fearful and sorrowful and hard, what would you write in your letter? Well, today we're going to turn our thoughts to the first chapter of the book of Philippians and hear what the Apostle Paul wrote concerning one of his prison experiences. So we started our series in Philippians last week. Jake Mason taught us. We'll pick it up today in chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And as you find your way there in your Bibles or on your phones, I'll, I'd like to pray for us. So pray with me. Lord, have mercy on us. Um, your word warns us on almost every page that hardship and suffering awaits those who follow Jesus. And yet we would, we would wish it away. Um, so help us today to be ready to be steadfast when those troubles come our way. By your spirit and your word, do this, Lord, we pray. Amen. All right, starting in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1, Paul says to this Philippian church whom he had known for maybe 10 years or more and had visited a couple times after he helped start the church uh, back in those early days, they're concerned about him and he writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So what was it that happened to Paul 
that really served to advance the gospel? You know, did he, did he win the lottery and he had lots of resources so he could fund great works for Christ? Did he finally get his PhD? Did he uh, get his self-published book on Amazon? What was it that advanced the gospel? What happened to Paul that advanced the gospel? None of those kinds of things. Paul was put in prison and that is what happened that really served to advance the gospel, as he says. So you have to wonder, how does that work? Lock up the missionary and the gospel advances. It's not exactly the typical strategy that we would deploy. Um, but, but before we address that conundrum, it's important, I'd like us to think about his imprisonment just for a little bit because we don't really know where Paul's imprisoned. Uh, he, some say Ephesus, some say Rome, some guess elsewhere. The, the Philippians probably knew where he was. Um, we evidently don't need to know that. What we need to know is why he is there, and that we're told in the very next verse. Look at the back end of verse 13 where it simply says, my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul is in prison because of his faith in Jesus. That is why he is there. And this whole way of talking and approaching about this seems to be a really bad church mission strategy. You tell people, hey, follow Jesus and you too can get locked up. It's not, it's just not, it's a bad recruitment strategy. But Paul is adamant and he's clear. The gospel advanced because of his chains, not in spite of his chains because of his change. The language of imprisonment here is the language of chains, of bondage. So we're back to that question. How could that be? How does that work? Um, but let me, let me do one more little aside before we address that head on. Paul is in prison for his faith. And this warns us that from the very beginning, Christians have had enemies because of their faith. And there is a cost to following Jesus. Preachers who fail to teach this truth and only focus on the perks of, of the faith, and there are many, many perks, right? Don't, don't let me say anything otherwise. But to simply focus on those and not talk about the hardship of following Christ, they are editing the, New the teaching of the New Testament to shreds. We are warned on almost every page, it seems. It's a sobering thought to read of Paul in chains simply because he followed Jesus. So church, you are being warned, right? So back to the question at hand. How does locking up the missionary advance the gospel look again in verse 13 um, he says so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ so evidently in his imprisonment Paul has been talking to the guards and to others perhaps other prisoners they have in mind and he evidently has been talking about Christ so that the entire imperial guard, it says, knows and others know that he's there because of his faith. Now, this imperial guard is a fascinating group. 
We're not 100% sure of who they are, but the most intriguing um, theory is advanced by scholar Walter Hansen, and he says that Paul's reference to the palace guard points to the most elite group of Roman soldiers who served as a special bodyguard for Caesar. This group of 9,000 elite soldiers sometimes exerted control over Caesar himself. In fact, they deposed and promoted Caesar's. After they assassinated Caligula, they put Claudius on the throne. Later, they uh, guided the directions of Nero's reign. And then he adds this beautiful thought. He says, but Caesar's bodyguard could not intimidate Paul. Paul served a higher power than Caesar or Caesar's bodyguard. So Paul says, precisely because of his imprisonment, he has access to these elite soldiers to speak to them of Christ. So here's the thing. Your suffering and trouble takes you to places you otherwise would not go. And it makes you useful to God in lives you otherwise would not encounter. So in 2009... North Wakers, uh, Noah and Steph Joyner. Um, there's a picture of them, their young family. That's back when Noah had access to a beard trimmer. Um, <laughs> 2009, they gave birth to their son, Shepard. And Shep was immediately hospitalized for a major heart defect. Uh, the surgery to repair this defect left him with a variety of life-threatening complications, resulting in a two-month stay in pediatric ICU. And of that experience, Steph reflects, this was the last place we hoped to be with our new son. In fact, I can recall easily the deep, heavy disappointment that lingered in those halls, packed with families who so desperately didn't want to be there. This reality made for quick and natural conversation, she says. Everyone was being swallowed up with tragedy, and everyone was desperate for hope. No one snubbed their noses at the offer of prayer. Weeping parents became quick friends who would update us daily on our way to and from the cafeteria. We hugged, we wept, we prayed together. We pled with God for what felt like a miracle every day. And honestly, we saw many accomplished. And just as honestly, we attended funerals. Time and time again, we were able to pray over physicians before they performed dangerous surgeries on Shep. We had the opportunity to remind them that we didn't need them to be God for us. We already had one. And Shepherd's life could be entrusted to him. She says, it was the hardest season of our life, yet simultaneously filled with so much grace and rich opportunity. She says, even after the hospital, the first three years of his life required in-home nursing care. A nurse would stay awake with him every night so that we could sleep and he would be safe. Very few, she says, of our new house guests personally walked with Jesus. And it was an honor to call them friends and welcome them into our lives to care for our son with us. Countless spiritual conversations naturally arose in those late nights and early mornings as we shared over those years. And many of those people remain like family to this day. She says, more suffering than we had imagined for my son's early life? For sure. More grace than we imagined would ever come with it? Without a doubt, she writes. So your suffering and trouble takes you places that you otherwise would not go. And it makes you useful to God in lives you otherwise wouldn't encounter. Even little troubles 
So many of you remember Cheryl Atwater, a wonderful North Waker, used to worship here with us. Uh, Cheryl was a gifted evangelist. She didn't like the door-to-door stuff, but her philosophy was, if you come in my home, you're going to hear about Jesus. And so when her dishwasher broke and she called some hapless plumber to come and repair it, that guy was going to hear about Jesus. And sure enough, it actually happened. Her dishwasher broke and she led the plumber to Jesus in her kitchen where the dishwasher was. Only because their dishwasher gave them trouble. It's the only reason she had access to this guy. Your suffering and trouble takes you places you otherwise would not go and makes you useful to God in lives you otherwise would not encounter. Now Paul adds another way that the gospel is being unleashed by his imprisonment and it's even more counterintuitive than this one. Look at verse 14. Most of the brothers, you could add sisters there, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So the church, even the majority of the church, it says, are emboldened by Paul's imprisonment. So again, here's the strategy. Lock up the missionary and people get bolder. How... How does that work? That's not how we would think it would work. Paul says their confidence in God increased. Perhaps it was because they had heard how God was at work even in Paul's troubles in prison. One suggestion goes something like this. If the Lord can give courage to Paul to witness like that while he is in chains, then he can give courage to us to witness in our difficult trials. There's another sense that in seeing Paul's greater sacrifice, they knew that their sacrifice was also worth it. This gospel, they believed, was worth it. In a sense, Paul's chains inspired their confidence in the worth-itness of the gospel. There was a book uh, that I read when I was in college. It was a great inspiration. It was making the rounds everywhere. And if you're of a younger generation, you haven't read it yet, it's called The Shadow of the Almighty. Uh, And it's Jim Elliott's journals, and it's a must-read. It is an absolutely powerful book. But uh, he and four other missionaries went to reach the Alca Indians and others in Ecuador, a totally unreached tribal group. And they were all four murdered there by the people they went to share Christ with. Now, after Jim was murdered, along with those four other missionaries, his wife, Elizabeth, and their young daughter, Valerie, returned to Ecuador to contact the exact tribe that had murdered her husband. Um, She wanted to live among them so that she might learn their language, reduce it to writing, and explain the gospel to them. It was as though by her husband's sacrifice, her confidence in God increased. And Elizabeth became all the more bold to speak the gospel, even to his murderers, without fear, even willing to take her young daughter there. I like the way Professor Walter Hansen put it. He says, the chains that bound Paul liberated others to speak the word of God fearlessly. The chained inspired the unchained 
Courage is contagious. The timid catch boldness from the brave. It might be helpful at this point just to stop for a minute and say, why is Paul so all fired up about the advancement of this thing called the gospel? What is, what is this gospel that he's talking about? It's a word that we don't use a lot these days, but it, means, it simply means good news. And the simplest definition would be that it's the good news about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, the four biographies of Jesus in our Bibles we call gospels. They bring us good news, the good news of Jesus by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, John Piper, Pastor John Piper wrote a book once and the title of it was God is the Gospel. And that's a really beautiful way to put it. To know the love of God and God himself is the very best of news. And so Paul is all about this gospel of Jesus, as he calls it, because he has experienced it personally. You can read about his encounter with Christ in the book of Acts. It's phenomenal. But he also believes it's the hope of Jesus for all people to be free from their sin and to know God. Jesus and Paul's gospel tells how it is that sinful, undeserving folk like us can know a beautiful and holy God by way of the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross for our sins and his resurrection to newness of life on the third day, transferring our trust to Christ's good work on the cross rather than relying on our own insufficient good works is how that truth about Jesus becomes, truly becomes gospel to us, the very best of, new, of news. Um, now, it's, it's absolutely crucial that we grasp um, what Paul is not saying here. He is not saying that suffering is inherently redemptive in and of itself. Okay? It is not. What he is saying by his example and his words is that steadfastness in suffering is redemptive in God's hands and valuable. Faithfulness to God, even though you suffer, is what honors and pleases and is useful to God. So if we lose our job and we grumble around and curse God and even deny our faith, God is not honored in that suffering. The gospel is not advanced. If our spouse gets some terrible illness and we decide to abandon ship and find a more convenient arrangement somewhere else, God is not honored in that suffering. It is when we suffer and we still trust and hope and speak of the love and mercy of our God in Christ, then the gospel advances through us. It is our steadfastness in suffering that matters. In particular, it is our faithfulness in speaking of Christ during those hard times that helps the gospel spread. And Paul's clear in verse 14 that it's for us all, right? This is all of our lot. He says there, most of the brothers, that is most of the church, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. The whole church was speaking the word. He doesn't say most of the pastors and most of the evangelists and most of the missionaries were emboldened. No, he says most of the brothers, the brothers and sisters, the whole church um, were emboldened. So step back with me a minute and just self-assess through this story that's told by uh, writer Francis Chan. 
<clears throat> when, when Chan was a pastor, he says, we had a pastoral staff member do something that uh, I've only dreamed about, he said. As my colleague was driving one day, the car in front of him accidentally hit a guy on a bicycle and knocked him down. The cyclist got up, and he then pounded on the hood of the driver's car. In his rage, he went over to the driver's side door, opened it, and began kicking and punching the driver, who happened to be a 75-year-old man. My friend was sitting behind this scene. He's watching it all, and he's faced with a decision. What should he do? Should he get out and help to make things more complicated? He also had a little baby in the back seat. So determined to help, he said, our pastor proceeded to get out of the car and pull the cyclist off of the older man. As he did, the cyclist wouldn't stop. He got physical with the pastor, too. He tore his shirt off in his effort to get back to assaulting the driver. So our pastor had to make another decision. Should he punch this guy? And the pastor decided yes. It's one of our great fantasies, right? And with one uppercut punch, he knocked this guy out. And when the police came and verified the story from all the witnesses who honked and clapped when this originally happened, the policeman asked our pastor, how many times did you punch him? And the pastor said, honestly, just once. So, you know, don't mess with your pastor. It's kind of the, that's the side lesson here. The policeman said, that's what everyone else said. And he says, later I told my wife, Chan writes, who knew I was impressed, that I'd been dreaming about doing this. Right? As I told this story, our congregation erupted into applause. Their excitement wasn't due to his mighty punch, though it did amaze many, but the fact that he took up for this older man. So I asked our church, how many of you would have gotten out of the car and tried to stop this assault, even if the guy was bigger than you? And most nodded in affirmation. Most would get out and do something. They would have courage to intervene. And then I asked, how many of you would go speak the gospel to a 75-year-old man who was sitting alone at a restaurant if you knew that he was not a Christian? Would you even engage in any spiritual conversation with him at all? And he says, why is it that we find it easy to be courageous in physical matters but difficult in this spiritual matter? Why are we cowards when it comes to speaking the gospel? And then he makes this wise insight. He says, could it be because there's a deeper conflict going on. Could it be that the speaking the gospel is warfare? I think so, he says. Let us pray then for great courage as we make the gospel known to people. Let us think on the affliction of other missionaries and pray for God to grant us boldness in making the gospel known. So how about this? This week, before we run on to the next passage and forget all about this, this week, how about you join me every day you pray, Colossians 1, verse 14, that God would make you bold without fear in speaking of Jesus. Every day. Even in our troubles. Maybe especially in our troubles. So the gospel is being advanced in a very divine way while Paul's in prison, but all is not sunshine and rainbows here. There are people who are messing with Paul even while he is in chains. 
and they're in the church. So look at verse 15 through 17. Paul says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So there are um, two groups of people Paul's talking about. There are folks who love Paul and are essentially picking up the slack in proclaiming Christ while he's in prison, right? But there's another group that are preaching Christ too, but they're motivated by envy and rivalry and selfish ambition, and they're hoping that this will distress Paul while he's in prison. Now, this is an interesting approach to uh, distressing the apostle Paul, right? They're, they hope to get at the great apostle Paul, perhaps the greatest missionary proclaimer of Christ in all of history, by proclaiming Christ more? Um, it's a bad strategy. It fails miserably, as, as we'll see. But it may be that this is some kind of a turf battle uh, where they are hoping to maybe have more baptisms than Paul and kind of, na 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 Paul, I'm baptizing people while you're in prison. Um, now, I know that sounds odd, almost unbelievable. I mean, can you imagine church folk, especially pastors, being competitive about having more people or bigger buildings than some other pastor? I mean, this is so far-fetched as to not even, not even be reasonable in any way, shape, or form. But trust me, it was a thing for Paul, and it's a thing today. So... Um, when the Summit Church decided they're going to move their main campus just down the road here in North Raleigh, I thought, ah, oh, they're moving to North Raleigh. I'll go have lunch with JD. I, I knew JD Greer from, uh, from before, and I thought, I'll go have lunch with JD and kind of welcome him to the neighborhood. And I invite him, and he says, yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, you, would you mind if I brought my strategic facilities guy? I guess they have one of those at the Summit, a strategic facility guy. I said, sure, bring him. Jake Mason gets wind of that he's bringing his strategic facilities guy, and Jake, Jake says, I want to have lunch with the president. So he, Jake, comes along, and the four of us have lunch together. And essentially, J.D. brought along his guy for backup, right? Why, why would he, we just wanted to have lunch. The poor guy sat there the whole time and didn't say anything. We didn't, we didn't care about their strategic facilities plan. We just wanted to welcome to the neighborhood. Uh, why would he feel like he needed to bring backup? Because someone had already been shooting at him for putting that church in the backyard of their church. Right? And so that's why when the summit opened, uh, that, that North Raleigh campus, we went down together on a Sunday night and we, we prayer walked on their property and asked God to bless them. Um, so that your pastor and you all would be decidedly for the summit. Not competing with the summit, okay? Professor Frank Thielman writes again, he says, the fellowship of the modern church lies in tatters because of rivalry over turf, competition for money and influence, and petty theological disagreements. See, here at Northway, we are for other Christ-honoring local churches. We celebrate their growth and effectiveness, we pray for God to use them greatly. 
There's this prayer. You can look it up on the internet. It's called the Litany of Humility. It's one of the most dangerous prayers that you can pray. And uh, let me show you just the back end of it. And I've adapted it for churches. It's written for people. It goes like this. I pray that other churches may be loved more than ours, Jesus. Grant us the grace to desire it. That other churches may be esteemed more than ours. Jesus, grant us the grace to desire it. That in the opinion of the world, other churches may increase and ours may decrease. Jesus, grant us the grace to desire it. That other churches may be chosen and ours set aside. Jesus, grant us the grace to desire it. That other churches may be praised and ours go unnoticed. Jesus, grant us the grace to desire it. That other churches may be preferred to ours in everything. Jesus, grant us the grace to desire it. That other churches may become holier than ours, provided that ours may become as holy as we should. Jesus, grant us the grace to desire it. See, it's about the message, not the messenger. Okay? And here's a helpful overview of how Paul feels about, about envy and rivalry among Christians. Um, Envy and rivalry are often paired in Paul's letters in lists of reprehensible characteristics of evil people. Envy and rivalry are works of the flesh and evidence of a depraved mind. Teachers of false doctrines are interested in controversies that result in envy, rivalry, and other destructive attitudes and words. Envy is characteristic of people who are enslaved by all kinds of passions before their salvation and rebirth by the Holy Spirit. Rivalry should be avoided because it's a mark of warped and sinful people. Our God, however, is so merciful and mighty that he could take something as evil as envy and turn it for good. Professor Frank Theoman again says it well, the insincere preaching of these rivals stands parallel to Paul's imprisonment. Both are evil, but God is able to use them for his redemptive purposes. You see, Paul says through it all, Christ is preached, and that's what matters most to Paul. In fact, it matters so much that there in prison, he experiences Cresswellian joy right there, chained up. What then, verse 18 says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yeah, it's interesting. Paul here has very little to say about the details of his suffering. Um, we don't know what his cell was like. We don't know what his food was like. We don't know that he was freezing cold or dying from heat. We still know because something mattered more to Paul than his suffering. And that was that Christ was exalted. There's a beautiful rendering. You can guess where it's from as I read it. So what then? Get guys that tell about Christ for make everybody think they hot stuff? Other guys, they do them for real, kind of. But no matter, they fake or they real for real. Get guys telling people about Christ and that make me stay good inside, right? Direct from the Apostle Paul and the Hawaiian pigeon version. See, knowing that the hope of Christ is being shared with others, this greater joy swallows up Paul's prison sorrows. And it brought joy to Jen's cell there in Ethiopia. And it brought joy to the joiners there in that hospital wing. And even to Cheryl with that busted dishwasher. What about you? 
when suffering comes to your household, okay, I'm choosing my words carefully, when suffering comes to your household, not if suffering comes to your household, when suffering comes to your household, will you be steadfast in Christ in your suffering because you have a greater joy? The joy of knowing Christ and making him known, even there, even in your hard places and your suffering. Let's, let's pray together. Lord, this is a, this is a tall order, and um, on our good days, we're like, yes, yes, of course. But Lord, suffering waits for us all. Many in this room are sitting in the middle of it, and it's the hardest thing in the world to grab onto greater joy than your sorrow. And so have mercy on us that the good news of Jesus bearing the love of God to us by the cross would swallow up our sorrows. And to speak of him to someone else might make it worth it all. Um, Lord, help us and have mercy on us, we pray. Amen. So we'd like to close our time today um, by letting you meet a couple that's grappling with these truths in a, in a really personal way as part of their journey. Um, Hunter and Priscilla Mason are being sent out by Northwake to Asia. There is a um, table in the lobby. If you want more information after the service, you can find out there. But if you guys will come on up, grab a microphone. I want you guys to meet Hunter and Priscilla.